Welcome to Talking Biotech, the podcast dedicated to exploring the latest advancements in biotechnology, sponsored by Calabra, the R&D software that accelerates scientific discovery with AI. Each week, we'll dive into the latest innovations and discoveries with industry leaders and pioneers. Now, here's your host, Dr. Kevin Fulta. I want to see science serve a useful purpose to improve the standard of living for all people. Why is anyone fighting food advance? A very small percentage of the world's population is fortunate enough to have the luxury of turning down food. We've arranged a society based on science and technology in which nobody understands anything about science and technology. You can't build a peaceful world on empty stomachs and human misery. You're listening to Talking Biotech, a weekly podcast illuminating issues in agricultural and medical biotechnology. Your questions and concerns are addressed using a science-based approach with the goal of driving discovery to application with communication. Now here's your host, Dr. Kevin Folta. Yeah, hi, it's Kevin Folta. I'm here again. I'm on Talking Biotech, episode number 21. And we're now going into the next two weeks talking about cassava. And cassava is something that maybe you've never heard about. And the reason I want you to know about it is because many people throughout the world are dependent upon this important crop. And uh, for many, um, this is uh, their, their main staple. This is a huge part of dietary calories uh, for probably 800, 800 million, with an M, uh, people. And this crop is grown primarily throughout uh, the African continent, or sub-Saharan Africa, um, throughout uh, the areas of South America and into Asia. And it's a very robust, uh, uh, very uh, strong plant that grows extremely well and produces a large starchy tuber, so a root-like organ, um, like a potato of sorts. But it's a large uh, tuber that you can use for food and has a good caloric value. Um, Plant grows very quickly. Uh, It has some interesting angles to it. It's high in cyanide. So don't tell the food babe. She'll have it banned. Um, it has high in cyanide, so uh, people who grow this and eat, consume it must be very careful in the preparation. And it grows extremely well in uh, areas that are challenged in terms of the um, uh, climate, and they still can still can produce this kind of food. The problem is is that it's not necessarily a complete. A dietary source for protein and other nutrients. And so uh, you see a number of deficiencies that come up in areas where cassava is the primary uh, food that is eaten. So there's been a lot of interest in trying to fortify cassava, either by using um, traditional breeding methods or by sometimes going into transgenics. And what we'll talk about over the next couple weeks are the efforts that are being made in traditional breeding. We'll talk about some of the um, natural history and domestication of cassava. But we're going to start today by talking about some of the biofortification efforts. Um, We'll talk to Hervé Vandershoren, who uh, comes from University of Liege, 
And uh, he's been working with a team to add an essential vitamin, vitamin B6, to cassava. And uh, it's, it's been done at least in the laboratory and maybe has some good potential uh, to reach people in the field. And in the second part of today's podcast, we'll talk to Laura Boykin. And Laura's from the University of Western Australia. Um, she's one of the 12 badass women of science, and you'll see why. Uh, Laura oozes with passion for the people of the African continent and other places where cassava is consumed. And her interest is to use her abilities as a bioinformatics expert, expert to understand the white fly. And this is a pest that spreads the cassava brown streak and cassava mosaic virus, two viruses which really do challenge the ability to grow this key staple crop. And so I want you to know about cassava. And I want you to know about how cassava is consumed throughout the world and is so important to the developing world. And I really would like you to understand some of the ways in which biotechnology, whether it's modification of those genomes with a, with a transgene or whether it's just the use of molecular markers in breeding, how these tools have helped many uh, create a better product for those on the African continent and, and other places as well. And so with that, we'll begin week one of two of All About Cassava on Talking Biotech. So today our guest on Talking Biotech is uh, Professor Hervé van der Schuren, and he comes to us from University of Liège and uh, has been working on this particular project when he was uh, a group leader at ETH in Zurich. Uh, so welcome to Talking Biotech, uh, Professor van der Schuren. Thank you for inviting me to this uh, podcast. It's great to have you on because these are exciting applications that I just think are so important. So could you maybe review for us a little bit about cassava and who eats cassava and what part of the world is particularly dependent on this crop? Well, cassava originally comes from Brazil and it has been in Asia in the 18th and 19th century. Um, it's a very important crop. It's a staple crop, uh, especially very important in um, in Africa, where it is seen as a security, food security crop. Um, people usually consume the starchy, starchy roots, uh, but you can also use the leaves that are quite rich in proteins and some micronutrients. So depending on the country where you are looking at this uh, crop, people would eat only the roots, or they would sometimes combine with uh, some uh, dishes in, uh, integrating uh, the leaves in their diet. So um, it's a very important crop. As I said, it's food security crop. It's also becoming in the last years an important industrial crop because the starch that you can extract from cassava, from cassava roots, is actually quite pure and of good quality. So the industry is now looking into cassava as an alternative for starch supply, an alternative to maize or corn or uh, potato, for example. So um, it is also expected that cassava will become also an important crop in, in countries where it hasn't been an important crop. And I could uh, quote or cite uh, countries like South Africa or China that is actually increasingly using cassava as a, a supply for starch. And it's, uh, frequently I hear about cassava that although it grows very well and it's a rather vigorous plant, the parts that are eaten typically have problems with uh, nutrient 
levels. They're very just starchy, but also have issues with uh, cyanide accumulation. So how how does that fit into the way that cassava is used? Yeah, as as you rightly said, um, cassava suffers from from different um, <clears throat> problems. I should have said as well that cassava is actually seen as an orphan crops. So um, as an orphan crop, so it, it means that uh, very little investment has been done in crop improvement for, for cassava. And that's the reason why uh, this crop is still facing some very important uh, challenges. So you cited or you mentioned um, cyanide is one of these problems. I mean, cassava has a high cyanide content, meaning that people have to process and ferment cassava before consuming it. And this has led, I mean, improper uh, processing of cassava has led to some major problems uh, of intoxication in, in, in Africa. Cassava is also very poor, or at least cassava roots are very poor in protein content. So it has very low protein content. It also suffers from other uh, low micronutrient content, and meaning that people that rely mostly on cassava as, uh, as a staple um, would actually suffer from different um, deficiencies in their diet. I, I think on my podcast, I think it's episode 16, where I interview, um, where I interview Nasib Mugbwanya, who is a, uh, a national from Uganda, who says that many people rely on cassava for um, almost every meal, and it's the same every day. And these kinds of steps in micronutrient um, biofortification can have profound impacts with these particular individuals. And so what about uh, your, what are some of the, so your group has worked with engineering in metabolic steps to increase the amount of vitamin B6. So what is vitamin B6 and the related compounds that, and, and what happens when you are in deficiency? Well, there are various diseases that are related to uh, vitamin B6 um, deficiencies, mostly heart disease and some um neuronal disease that are linked to this deficiency. Uh, we have worked with a team in Geneva that has made some pioneering work on um, deciphering the, the, the pathway leading to vitamin B6 biosynthesis in Arabidopsis. And so our work now in collaboration with those scientists from University of Gen Geneva illustrates the benefits we can have from um, very basic research done in Arabidopsis and then what you can eventually bring into crops um, I must or have to mention that uh, we came to realize that cassava is deficient in many different vitamins, but vitamin B6 seems to be a, appear to be in, in several studies a recurring uh, issue in countries like Uganda, um, South Sudan, and Tanzania, where uh, several surveys looking at different other diseases realized that it was a kind of a common a commonality in those uh, populations that vitamin B6 was uh, deficient. In, in a high percentage of the population. So um, we basically took this work from, from Arabidopsis and tried to engineer uh, this trait in cassava. And we, well, we've come up with very uh, exciting level of enrichment of vitamin B6, both in roots and in leaves of, of, uh, of cassava. Um, moreover, as you might know, um, very often when you do those kind of studies, trying to do biofortification of crops, it's also very essential to show that those micronutrients are actually bioavailable to, to human bodies. And so we have used also an assay, I don't want to go into the details, but it's called a CACO2 cells assay that is using some intestine cells uh, to test whether 
the engineer, the increase in vitamin B6 in cassava roots and leaves actually translates in more vitamin B6 bioavailable uh, for humans. And our conclusion is that it is indeed clearly, uh, there is indeed clearly more bioavailable vitamin B6 in those extracts of cassava roots and leaves. And when, uh, I guess the other question would be, does the vitamin B6 and its uh, other related compounds, do they survive the cooking process or fermentation process when uh, cassava is prepared to eliminate the cyanide? Yeah, so that's, that's a good question, actually. That's what we have done, actually. I should have mentioned that uh, we've done both, actually, extract of fresh cassava roots and leaves, but we have also tested uh, processed cassava, so boiled cassava roots and boiled cassava roots, uh, cassava leaves, sorry. Um, and we've demonstrated that there is indeed more bioavailable vitamin B6 in those leaves and roots extracts. So um, we are pretty confident that this trait uh, can really bring some benefits, provided that we bring this trait into something meaningful for local population, meaning that there is still work to be done in uh, introgressing or engineering this trait in um, local or farmer-preferred varieties in Africa or in Asia or in South America. And maybe we can take a step backwards and talk about the genes themselves. And so the genes come from Arabidopsis, and what genes were engineered in, and what do they do inside the plant? We, we basically took those two key genes that are called PDX1 and 2 that have been uh, shown to um, be the limiting factor in uh, Arabidopsis for vitamin B6 uh, biosynthesis. So basically when scientists knocked on or looked at mutants um, of, for those genes in Arabidopsis, they realized that... Um, those genes would actually uh, be essential for vitamin B6 uh, biosynthesis. Uh, we use a, a synthase and a glutaminase, uh, basically PDX1 and PDX2, uh, to increase this biosynthesis. What is surprising or what is nice in this story is that using Arabidopsis gene, you can really reach such a high increase, up to 40 or 30 to 40-fold increase in vitamin B6 in leaves or in roots. So um, it seems that those enzymes can are kind of... Uh, generic and can basically bring this benefit in, in many different crops. And, and so are those genes missing from cassava? No, they are not missing. You can find those genes in cassava. But of course, uh, we have driven those, those genes with strong promoters. So we've used, in one case, the so-called 35S promoter, which is a consultative promoter. But we've also used uh, a patatin promoter derived from potato uh, that can increase um, uh, expression that have that has increased expression in cassava roots. Uh, so that was the two strategies we have been using. Uh, I should also mention that we are not trying to bring this trait into rice because we we also know that vitamin B6 deficiency can be important in populations where rice is is a staple. Preliminary work shows that we can indeed also increase vitamin B6 in rice. However, I should mention that uh, bringing this trait into the rice undersperm seems still to be a kind of a challenge. And when we look at uh, the distribution of this, you mentioned that it's now being introduced into locally acceptable varieties, which is really exciting. Is there any special um, protection or patents that are going to limit its spread into places where it can be very helpful? No, I, I, I mean, maybe I should correct this. It is not yet at this stage of introducing this trade into farmer-preferred cultivars, but that's something we have been very active uh, in the last year. So 
I've done a lot of work in bringing biotechnology to African labs, so meaning that I have established uh, in collaboration with uh, African scientists um, the so uh, platforms for genetic transformation of cassava. So meaning that now you have teams in Africa based in in Kenya or in South Africa or in, in, in other countries in West Africa where uh, basically they can transform, genetically transform uh, local land races and local varieties. Um, so my expectation from, from this um, work I have done in tech transfer is that it will facilitate uh, rapid integration of those uh, traits into uh, local uh, varieties. However, I have to mention that uh, this will be up to those local scientists and local institutions to decide whether this is a trait that they want to see uh, in their local germplasm if, that they want to distribute to farmers. And so what is uh, happening next in your laboratory and with respect to this project? Well, <clears throat> the, the next step is to continue our collaboration with um, the team in, in Shanghai where they have to further evaluate um, agronomic performance of those plants. I, didn't mention, I, I should mention that vitamin B6 is also a very potent antioxidant. Um, and while we haven't seen in the lab any um, special uh, phenotype of those plants, but we expect that those plants might perform better under adverse environments because of this higher antioxidant content. So that will be very interesting to perform now uh, agronomic field trials in order to check whether uh, those plants could have some kind of... Um, also, they, that whether this trait could also bring some benefit not only to humans but could also bring some benefit to cassava. So that's something that we are very keen on evaluating as a next step uh, in this project. And then our team in uh, in, in in Europe, uh, at least that's the way I see it. I think it is nice that we work on cassava and we can do some proof of concept. But I still think that we need to see more of the. Uh, teams in Africa and Asia to really take on this um, innovation and to bring it directly to the field. I don't think that uh, European labs should be doing this this work because I think uh, people locally should have the freedom to decide what is good and what, what they want to integrate in their uh, germplasm. And I think that's really an exciting um, way to think about this because we can come up with technologies all day, but until those technologies are really adopted locally and uh, and fostered locally, uh, they still there still is that feeling that it's something from the uh, industrialized world coming to a developing country. And I think if they can do this locally with local leadership and local scientists, there's much more acceptability. Yes, yeah, of course. I mean, there was a study back in 2012 in Nature Biotech where they basically look at look uh, at local acceptance of biotechnology uh, in Eastern Africa, and they clearly show that. Um, the fact that uh, local uh, control of this technology or local capacity to use this technology, the absence of this local capacity is actually going against adoption of, of the technology. So basically, as long as it will be seen as a, a Western-only technology, I think we will suffer to bring the benefit of biotechnology in those developing countries. So there is really a need to establish or, or to build capacity in those countries so that they can really promote and also make the, be the best use of this technology and decide. I think more importantly, they need to decide what they want to develop locally. Well, it's really exciting to hear about such innovations, especially when they're designed to target those in need and those who really are confined to very few dietary choices and that they could have uh, improved options for food. 
And so, you know, Professor Hervé van der Schuren, um, thank you so much for joining us today on Talking Biotech. I thank you very much for interviewing me and giving me the opportunity to talk about this innovation. And that's uh, Professor Hervé van der Schuren. He was part of the research team that published a vitamin B6 enriched cassava in this last week's uh, Nature Biotechnology. Thank you for listening to the Talking Biotech Podcast. It's the weekly podcast that discusses how the newest technologies in traditional breeding and genetic engineering conspire to improve medical treatments as well as animal and plant products. The idea is to use our best tools to feed the needy and help the farmer and do so with respect to our planet. The Talking Biotech Podcast is financed and produced 100% by Dr. Kevin Folta and separate from his popular outreach workshops. If you'd like to help, please write a review on iTunes or tell a friend to listen in. With every episode, our numbers grow, and your listenership is truly appreciated, as moving innovation to application requires communication. And this week on Talking Biotech, we have a theme. And cassava is a crop that's basically unknown to the West. People rarely encounter it here, maybe in a few forms, that tend to travel more with confections than they do with staples. Yet there are people all over the world, um, primarily in the African continent, where cassava is a part of their daily diet. And it faces many problems that, um, that come from threats in the environment. Uh, biotic and abiotic. And so what I would like to do is spend a day talking about cassava. Um, today we're very fortunate um, to have with us Laura Boykin. Uh, Laura is a research fellow in the School of Chemistry and Biochemistry at the University of Western Australia. And uh, welcome to Talking Biotech, Laura. Thank you so much for having me. Well, thank you for responding on a, on a rapid notice. We'll talk about this maybe later, but <laughs> the power of Twitter. <laughs> uh, how cool that you can get a scientist that works in cassava on, on five minutes notice. But So why don't uh, you tell me a little bit about more than, you know, I've tipped the hat here a little bit about cassava, but can you tell me in some detail about what cassava is and why it's so critical to think about solutions for its problems? Well, I can tell you that Bill Gates ca calls cassava the most interesting vegetable in the world. And if you haven't read his Gates notes on cassava, it is a must read. And it's, ah, uh, it, cassava is a part of the plant. It's a, it's a plant that's eaten by 800 million people in South America, Southeast Asia, and many countries in Africa. And I view you know, they, they, 800 million people rely on this root tuber for their daily calories. I mean, 800 million people. It's, it's, it's unbelievable. And currently, cassava is under attack in East Africa by two deadly viruses that are cassava brown streak viruses and cassava mosaic viruses. So there are these two viruses. We've now discovered that there are more than two viruses, but there are a lot of viruses in circulation in East Africa that are just killing cassava, deeming the plant 100% crop loss. So it's, it's a big deal. It's a lot of farmers are facing a really long hunger season in East Africa. And 
So we have a group of people that are on the that are on the team to fight the the viruses and the white flies that are transmitting the viruses to the plants. So we have uh, the perfect storm there, if you will, in that you have this crop that feeds so many people and so many people rely on it. And these viruses are just devastating um, the yields. And it's a serious situation. I guess that's uh, from what I've understood from talking to people from Africa, that this is a really ravaging disease for smallholder farmers because on Tuesday morning, everything looks fine. And the next day you're seeing symptoms and it's it's very rapid and it spreads quickly because of the insect vector and uh, is devastating. It, it, it leads to massive crop loss. That's hundred you're hundred percent right about that. And, um, for me, just more people need to know that, you know, there are these 80% of the smallholder farmers in East Africa are women. They're the strongest people on the planet. These women are, are struggling and we should be doing more to help them. And that is why I'm on this podcast because we need, we need people to know about it first before before solutions are really scaled up, you know? Well, yeah, and I admire your your passion and your sensitivity to this because I caught your TED Talk, too, and uh, it was just, you know, your the focus on these folks is um, something that really has been captivating to me, too, and I, I think that, you know, I never thought about retirement much, and uh, now it's on my radar because that's when I want to go there and, and do something to help others. And I don't know what that's going to be, but I, I got a feeling I'm going to spend my uh, my golden years with golden rice and golden cassava. And um, I guess the the question that I just to kind of get maybe some more context, uh, those who are listening to the podcast, if you go back to number, I think it's 16. I speak with Nassim, uh, Nassib Mugwanya, who is uh, from Uganda, who speaks about cassava, and he s- talks about this being such a staple where he's from, uh, that, well, between banana or cassava, that many families, uh, they have one meal a day and that it's cassava. And uh, that over and over again, you have the same kind of crop. And it's that essential. Yeah. And, you know, for me, I think that one thing, uh, one reason I'm I'm really happy to do the podcast and speak speak to your listeners is that, you know, just raising awareness of not only the farmers, but also my amazing colleagues, my amazing scientists in East Africa that deserve the spotlight just as much as I do, right? Like I work very closely with the national agricultural organizations in East Africa. And I just feel like scientists can do something now. They can start properly engaging with those scientists in collaborative projects on an equal basis. And, and it would just make the solutions so much faster if scientists in the West would properly engage with scientists in East Africa and actually, you know, work together on these problems because it's magical. It's absolutely the best thing I've ever done in my career was just going, I'm now going to be working on this with these people because it matters. And when you do that and I've made that decision, it just, everything about your day is better because you're engaged with people who are amazing scientists who know the problems, right? Like, I don't pretend to know what smallholder farmers need, but I know my collaborators do, and I listen to them. (laughs) And there's scientists in East Africa, particularly at 
you know, in there's there's a an amazing scientist named Dr. Joseph Nunguru who I at, who should be speaking to you now, right? He's the authority, in my opinion, on cassava. He's called the cassava man. And he's <laughs> at the Mikocheni Agricultural Research Institute in Tanzania. And he has a team there that is single-handedly bringing biotechnology to East Africa. You know, it's, it's amazing. He, you need him on your show. Oh, I love it. <laughs> I, 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 I would, I'm looking forward to doing a few episodes on cassava because yeah. um, more about, it's got such an unusual natural history. Its domestication yeah. was crazy between a couple continents. Uh, yes. Really a great story to talk about. And it's just a question of lining up the ducks in the row. And Yeah, we'll get them. We're, yeah. we're going to get, we're going to get the, the, there's this, I, I just think it's so important to know that there's this amazing, amazing amazing team on the ground in east africa right now that is hustling to save the cassava like no other group of scientists i've ever seen in my life it's the most inspiring thing and it's what keeps me going is knowing that we're a team we're doing this and it's just it's amazing it's really refreshing to have engagement with scientists that just care so much about the smallholder farmer well, let's talk about um, your team and your research project and how you're really going at this by taking on the vector. And can you tell me about this from maybe from the beginning about why this, this vector is important to study and how you're going about doing that? Right. So the white fly, the, the Latin name is Bamesia tabassi, and it has a global distribution, this particular species, and it feeds on the leaves of over 600 plants. So it's during that feeding that the viruses are transmitted from the white fly to the plant. So the white flies all look alike all around the world. And in about 2007, when I was actually in Florida working at the USDA in Fort Pierce, oh, okay. uh, we started to think, wow, you know, there's a lot of genetic diversity in the samples that we were getting from different parts of the world. And we thought, huh, maybe this is actually more than one species. So we started putting out in the literature, hey, this, the genetic diversity of this one vector looks to, be, looks to be indicative of more than one species. And so for the last sort of eight years, myself and, and colleagues have been pushing to uncover this diversity. And it turns out that there are about 34 species of this particular whitefly around the world. And so... Why is that important for cassava growers? Well, the cassava growers, the smallholder farmers, need to know, they need to identify the enemy, right? So there's, you can't give farmers a resistant variety to the wrong species of whitefly or the wrong species of virus. So you have to sort of customize the solution to what the problem is. So my, my role on the big cassava whitefly project is to identify the various species of whiteflies using genomic information, and the genomic information turns into big data, and we use supercomputers to look for patterns of diversity, global diversity, to help customize these solutions. Because as you said, cassava was, start, it was brought to Africa from South America, from Colombia, and so in Colombia, they're now saying, look, we have resistant varieties. And we say, hold on, wait a minute, your cassava whitefly is different than the cassava whitefly in Africa. So you can't just, you know, people think, oh, just take that and plant it and give it to the farmers in East Africa. But the thing is, it's a different species of whitefly that it's resistant to. So understanding the speciation of whiteflies helps to 
get the solution right for these smallholder farmers. So that's what I do. Very cool. And so what other technologies are currently being considered in addition to understanding the vector that can complement your work? So I, the, inf- the speciation information, the whitefly speciation information is shared with other colleagues on our large grant. And one of the people that is looking at um, genetically modifying cassava to be resistant to the whitefly is a woman named um, Angela Douglas, who's at Cornell University. So she needs to know, am I making this plant resistant to one species of whitefly or several species of whitefly? And then also the targets for this, you need to understand the diversity in the target so that your solution is designed for that. So we have people that are actually um, trying to genetically modify cassava to be resistant to whiteflies, but we also have breeders that are working to do conventional breeding against whiteflies as well. So all of the speciation information of the vector is shared amongst our bigger group, and that's how, I I mean, just that open line of communication is what's going to get us to a viable solution that much faster. And what are the current uh, types of solutions that are currently being implemented to protect cassava from whiteflies? So for us, currently, we're at ground zero of whitefly research. Now, I don't want to say ground zero of, of whitefly research in Africa. I want to say that there hasn't been much money invested in research in whiteflies in East Africa. So we, our first mission, the f- first four years of this grant is just trying to understand what's there. We don't even know, you know, there have been, a f- I mean, I think one of my PhD students is doing a project in, in Western Kenya and we did a literature search on how many papers had been written about whiteflies in, in Western Kenya or in Kenya, Kenya in general. Eight papers exist total. That's it. That's the knowledge mm-hmm. of, of, of Kenya. So we're, we're starting with, you know, just surveying, you know, do the farmers even know that whiteflies are transmitting viruses, right? That's the biggest thing. I think the first, the very first thing that's happening on the ground is education about the situation, right? Because a lot of farmers in East Africa are thinking they don't realize that the whitefly is actually a problem in transmitting the viruses. What? So education is the first thing that that is trying to, that we're doing through extension and through two partnerships with the national agricultural organizations on the ground. And uh, so our our. our- farmers currently using chemical controls in any great way to mitigate the effects of the virus? Okay, so chemical control and whiteflies are a deadly combination because they become insecticide resistant very quickly. And even if they could afford the chemicals, which they can't, they they wouldn't be useful. They would and and also I might I might I must add that cassava leaves and the roots are eaten by millions. The leaves are really an important part of the of the staple diet as well. So spraying them, even if they could afford it, would decrease the the you know food for the region. So um yeah, spraying spraying white flies in general is a really bad idea if unless you have a very good team that does integrated pest management absolutely watching what's happening because I mean in Arizona in the 90s 
farmers on cotton were spraying the heck out of cotton and the white flies became resistant and it was a serious situation. <laughs> it was, it was, a, it, 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 there's some interesting articles written about uh, what happened there, but yeah, chemicals aren't a good idea for white flies. Yeah. I think that's a serious issue right now in India. I think they're seeing a it lot is. of, yeah, they're seeing a lot of white fly pressure and uh, folks are saying, well, what about this BT thing? It doesn't, it's not working on white flies. It never was designed to. Uh, right. So they got a whole complex problem with that. And yeah, you know, white, white flies are really an interesting group of insect vectors for sure. They're they're compli- they're really complicated. They're they're perfect at what they do, right? They're absolutely perfect at what they do. They're designed for to perfection. And when you're doing your work now, you're mostly involved in more of the computational end and bioinformatics with with the white flies. Yeah, so for me, I've decided that that is my sort of specialty, but to break out of that in this particular project, I also go into the field in East Africa and meet with farmers and look to see where we're collecting the white flies. And yeah, it's we're. I feel like I have some PhD students from East Africa, and I think it's really important to have them, even though they're coming to Western Australia to, to learn um, computational biology, for us to be able to do full circle. Like we go collect the white flies and then we take it all the way through the analysis pipeline and then we're, our plan is to feed it back to the farmers through the extension workers and through our partners in the national agricultural organizations there. So well, that's really, I'm, I'm, that's- I'm, running, I'm running the spectrum, my friend. No, it sounds like it. It sounds like you're doing a, a, you know, that you're you're kind of doing the multi the multitasking and interdisciplinary work all yourself. Has has there been any interesting functional data that's come out of the all of the genome sequencing work that maybe uh, you know expansion of sp- specific families of genes that may be related to resistance or anything that's come out that was not just to determine speciation but also ability to move a virus. Yeah, so that's that's currently one hot topic, right, for us. So I do my my role is to look at the speciation of the white flies, but of course through doing that, we're doing it through transcriptomes and sort of genome skim sequencing. But we have other partners at the University of Greenwich in the UK who are their main focus is to to generate the genome of the African cassava whitefly, which is unknown, right? We don't have any genomic information on the African species whitefly. So we started our grant about 10 months ago, and I think we're close to having the first transcriptomes to look at. And it is interesting. There are some interesting things, that people, but nothing definitive yet is the short answer to that. So in a lot of ways, your work with uh, cassava and whiteflies really mirrors what's happening here in Florida with the focus on the Asian citrus psyllid, because people are looking at the diversity and the ways that maybe insect control strategies and integrated pest management can work to solve those problems better. And so in that way, kind of the same. Um, but what would be some very helpful technologies that would be good for you, say, on the ground in Eastern Africa? We have technology that can help save the cassava. We just have to think of it as important as like fighting Ebola. They have these mobile sequencing tents in West Africa to, to understand the Ebola virus. We need them in East Africa. And for me, I think that is, if we can do that, we're going to be sitting pretty to help. 
not only cassava and whiteflies, but all the other disease outbreaks. I mean, identifying them on the ground and not just identifying them, but have local knowledge there to run those facilities and understand the data is going to be key. The situation in East Africa is as important as the Ebola thing in West Africa. It is. So, so what was it like being named as one of the 12 badass women of science? <laughs> oh, man, that was the best. Um, <laughs> I got to tell you that that particular moment of ha- sitting there with those women is like going to be a lifelong highlight. It was, it is not easy being a woman in science and to be surrounded by 11 other badass women in science. It was, ah, uh, it's awesome. It's awesome. It's really, it's, um, it, uh, truthfully, it feels a bit weird, but it's also, it's awesome. Well, did so you, like, what was the, what was like, what was the contest like? Was it a, uh, like the uh, gladiators thing where you had to, you know, do some jousting, maybe tequila shots or what, 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 what how do you, how do you beat the competition? Well, you know, that particular photo, all of us in that photo, we are TED fellows, so we had a retreat in Asilomar, California in August. So all 300 and maybe we're 380 TED Fellows, we get together and it's pretty much like magic because in my opinion, some of the smartest, most innovative, most positive people are all in one place at one time. And we, they typically have these photo, like a, a photographer there to do headshots for us so that if we get invited to do a speaking engagement, you know, it's like not a selfie, it's a professional one. And um, so one of the women who's in the photo named Kristen um, said, hey, we should all just like before dinner, just go down to that photo booth and like have a photo of the women in science. The picture is amazing, but the moment, like the moment of being in the presence of those other women that are absolutely brilliant just made me feel like wow you know I'm never going to be alone again because these women are here like we're here we're here to stay we're not going anywhere (laughs) it was an honor to be a TED fellow and then to be in that photo was even bigger and it's just I'm so happy that it went on the internet and the positive feedback that you get from like moms who say hey my daughter saw the photo and you know, she's going to keep going for it. She wants to be a physicist or, a, you know, a mathematician. It's just cool. It's really a cool thing. Well, it is. And I, I think you are an excellent role model for that kind of thing. I mean, and now you now you, you're when I talk to you, you're in the University of Western Australia and yeah. you're not. I didn't hear you say things like, uh, you know, throw a shrimp on the Barbie. You're, you're, yeah, you're I am American. I was born and raised on the west side of Phoenix and. It's interesting, I met another TED fellow is from Nigeria, his name is Bond, and he said, I met him just recently at this retreat, and he said, man, I saw you on Facebook, and I thought, what is this white woman doing in Africa? You know, what is she doing over here? And and then, you know, he gets to know me, and, you know, I come from a place that is, you know, a struggle is not far away, so I can really relate to having not everything you need. And so to me, I think there are these women who have it a million times worse than, you know, myself and my my family did. And I have skills that can help. Of course, I'm going to help. It resonates with everything that I believe in. So 
that's why I do it. And those and, are the words of a badass woman of science, if I've ever heard them. I'm serious. <laughs> I I think they hit the nail on the head with you. And I'm, I'm uh, you know, really grateful to get to know you here and uh, be able to talk about this topic. And um, really hope that we can follow up with it again pretty soon. Thank you, too, Kevin. And uh, that's Laura Boykin, who's a research fellow at the School of Chemistry and Biochemistry at the University of Western Australia, uh, sharing some of her thoughts on cassava and her solutions through computational studies of the insect vector. So there you have week one of discussing all about cassava. And hopefully, if all goes well, we'll be able to revisit this particular topic next week with more examples of how some very good work in traditional breeding has introducing um, important traits into cassava and then also some more discussion of genetic engineering. And these are really important examples to know because when people stand against genetic engineering as a solution saying that it's only something that's made to benefit big corporations and uh, something that uh, is not good for us or helpful, I think it's very nice to be able to point to places in the world that they don't think of and think about the people that could be benefited in a very positive way uh, from this kind of technology. And as uh, one of my African friends said, it's about all we want is equal access to agricultural innovation. And let's provide that equal access. And so your job is to think about what we learned here today about cassava and take that information and talk to others and remind them about what it is, remind them of how good they have it, and remind them how technology can have very positive benefits for those who wish to use it if they can get it. So my name is Kevin Fulta. Thank you very much for listening to Talking Biotech, and we'll follow up again next week. Thank you. Thank you for listening to the Talking Biotech podcast. Please send your suggestions for guests, comments, or questions to talkingbiotech at gmail.com. Please write a review on iTunes and recommend this podcast to a friend. More downloads and reviews raise the visibility of this podcast and help us reach a wider audience with science. You've been listening to Talking Biotech, sponsored by Calabra, the platform that bridges the gap between siloed research tools. With Calabra's electronic lab notebook, scientists can work together in real time, sharing data and insights with ease. Revolutionize your research collaboration. Sign up for a demo today at calabra.app, C-O-L-A-B-R-A dot A-P-P.